Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that gives you a detailed behind-the-scenes look into the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and our guest today is Jacqueline Freeman-Hester, partner at The Founder Group, one of the leading early-stage firms in the world, which in 2015 also launched an effort to invest in emerging venture managers. Before joining Foundry, Jacqueline got her MBA JD from the University of Colorado and practiced corporate law advising startups and private equity firms, as well as buyers and sellers in M&A transactions. In this episode, we cover Jacqueline's journey into venture capital, the state of the emerging manager market, how Foundry evaluates venture managers, what she thinks makes for meaningful differentiation, and some common mistakes that emerging managers can avoid. Now, without any more delay, let's get into the show to hear all of that and more. Hey, Jacqueline, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. And before we get into all things venture and emerging manager in particular, I wanted to formally congratulate you on your promotion to partner at Foundry Group. It's so exciting. And I know I speak for a lot of people in the industry in saying that it's so incredibly well-deserved and, in my opinion, probably a bit overdue. But why don't we get into your journey into venture? How did that start? Yeah, so I I did my JD and my MBA uh, joint degree out here in Boulder, uh, sort of on a whim, um, got a scholarship and wanted to get off the East Coast for a little while. Um, I still live in Boulder. It's been 10 years, so we love it here and decided to stay. But I really didn't know anything about venture or startups going into that. Um, I was coming out here to do law school, go into corporate law, added the MBA because I thought that would be uh, a helpful way to make me a better lawyer. Um, But really, it was the Boulder community and actually... Um, in some ways, Foundry Group, through the way they touch the Boulder community and, and what they've done here, that introduced me to venture and startups. Um, and so getting through law school, um, I took Jason Mendelson's venture capital class. That was a real introduction to, really to entrepreneurship. Um, I worked with Brad Feld on something called Startup Colorado, where I was the executive director for a couple years. Um, and so that was sort of my introduction, and I started to fall in love with entrepreneurship and startups. But again, I like I didn't see this as a path for me, uh, and so and really, Foundry was you know still is one of the few venture firms out here, but certainly only the only one that was pretty established at the time that and and they don't really hire people, so didn't see that as a track. But at the same time, I, so I went to go and practice law, and I figured, well, I'll just have a law practice sort of you know that revolves around startups. That shifted as uh, one of the teams that I worked with um, left from the first firm I was at. And so I went to another firm and ended up in an M&A practice. And so um, did far less startup work there and started to realize that maybe the big law firm thing uh, and certainly M&A <laughs> were not really for me. At the same time, my husband and his brothers uh, were working on a startup uh, that his brothers founded and the entire family worked on called Fair Harbor, which is a sort of B2B SaaS uh, for travel and activity companies, tour and activity companies, to run their businesses and, and their bookings and all of that. And so I, you know, I worked on that with them as a as an outsider, but somewhat of an insider. Never actually an employee, but certainly doing work for them. Uh, did some legal work early on, um, you know, from the start and uh, saw it all the way through to exit, which was um, in 2018. We, we were acquired by Booking.com. And so sort of living the startup journey through them and then all the stuff I experienced in Boulder and through the law and business schools here, I just sort of fell in love with it. And when I realized that, you know, the big law firm thing really wasn't for me, um, you know, I started tapping the network that I had created in the, you know, the startup community here in Boulder, which included some of the Foundry partners. Um, And it just so happened 
that at the time I was looking for something new, which initially, you know, the thinking was, well, just go into a company and and be an operator for a little while or work for Techstars or something like that. There actually happened to be a new partner coming into Foundry uh, named Lyndall Ekman, who was going to start um, a new strategy for Foundry to really institutionalize something they had been doing with personal capital, which is to back sort of the next generation of great VC funds, mostly seed stage funds. Um, and to sort of fold that into to what we do for our LPs. And so Lyndall was used to having a team and he wanted to hire somebody. And I got introduced to him um, and I tricked him into hiring me, <laughs> um, the unhappy lawyer uh, with a little bit of startup juice. You know, it was originally going to be just, a, you know, a two year stint and help us spin this thing up. And there isn't really a track here. And then that, um, you know, over time shifted and has turned into a partnership and a place that I hope to be forever. So that is that's how I got into this business. Yeah, that, that's a great story. And, and you brought up that Foundry started up this new practice, investing in funds. A lot of us have thought of Foundry as a direct investor. What was the catalyst for you know starting up a fund of funds within a traditional direct fund? So we really think of it as as a natural evolution of the firm um, and of sort of the way that we were set up. So we still very much think of ourselves as a direct investor. In our two most recent funds, direct investing is 75% of the allocation. So it's still sort of the um, the core of our business. But what we found is that um, a couple of things. So one is, you know, we never had a junior team. I am the only non-partner investment team hire ever. <laughs> and now we can say we don't we don't have non-partner uh, or non-partner investors uh, again. So we I sort of broke that rule. Um, but it really wasn't designed to be a big firm and have a, like a you know legacy turnover and a lot of um, junior investment team. And so as we thought about the evolution of it and where our deal flow is coming from, and it, it sort of looked like, well, what is our what is our network and how have we sort of strengthened that network? And one way we did that over the years was to back um, mostly seed stage uh, emerging managers and some peers and some more established firms where we had access. But it was it was my partners um, and their personal capital and writing 100K checks to, you know, over 50 firms over the years, maybe 100 uh, if you look at individual fund entities. And a lot of the deal flow was coming from those funds. And so it's a thing that you see a lot of GPs doing today. We've been doing for a really long time. And so the thinking was, well, what if we brought this sort of in-house, institutionalized it and added it to our funds? Um, part of it is if you think about just from a portfolio construction perspective, if you assume and if you're good at it, and we, we I think we have a history of being good at it, you know, that we can get to that three to five X on the partner fund portfolio, we call them partner funds, then given the percentage that that is of our overall fund, that sort of returns capital across the fund. And then if then the direct investments are, you know, the profit and the upside. Um, so we liked the balance from sort of like what it does for our portfolios from a diversification perspective. But then also it was a way for us to bring some relationships a lot closer. And so at this point, you know, if you're a series A investor, which is typically where we enter, most companies have raised at least one, if not many, seed rounds from, you know, institutions. And so I think also part of it is just this the phenomenon of the institutionalization of seed that's relatively recent. The timing was right where there's a lot of firms out there. And then you've got, you know, my partners who had the GP background, which was attractive to new GPs to get to be partnered with them and also potentially do deals with them. But then also Lindell's, you know, incredible (laughs) institutional knowledge of backing VC funds. And so when he came to Utimco, 
Um, you know, he he was early. I think he was one of the first investors in Foundry and USV, uh, Spark, and so he had he had a great track record. Uh, I think True and IA are in there, and then he also worked with Michael Kim on Sundana um, from the early days, and so had a bunch of exposure to a lot of this category. So it was sort of you know Lindell's LP knowledge. Uh, my partner's, um, you know, personal LP knowledge, but then also being GPs that really came together nicely to be attractive to this next generation GPs. And then, oh, for us, on a look-through basis, it's about a thousand companies today, and that's still growing. And so given that we were already looking at deals with a lot of these funds, and it had been, you know, most of our deals were coming from seed funds, uh, now today, we we really focus on this group, uh, and we really consider them partners. And so it's it's almost like a distributed firm. You have seen a lot of the evolution of what's happened in early stage venture. And if I even think back over the last 12 years, we started off with that first generation being generalists, and then you had sector specialists. Now you have all types of models, including pre-seed and studio models, accelerator models, and so on and so forth. I'd be curious from a 30,000 foot view, where do you see emerging venture today? And what do you think the next decade holds for us? You know, one thing we're seeing certainly right now, um, which I think is, is partially because of the way the market is, is this like the solopreneur, I think, is a, is across the board a new thing. And then the solo GP. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot more of that. And I think, you know, institutions historically have not been super comfortable with that. If you think about the sort of we need a, a better uh, euphemism, but the you know, the hit by the bus, right? So what happens to the fun if, if the GP gets hit by the bus if there's only one person? There's also bandwidth challenges and it's sort of a lonely job to begin with. So doing it by yourself is hard. And so I think there used to be sort of uh, I think folks were concerned about taking risk on a solo GP. I'm seeing that shift. And I think, you know, maybe one result of COVID is that there's going to be more solo GPs that get backed than certainly new partnerships where there's not a lot of history um, or partnerships that don't have a lot of LP connections and haven't spent a lot of times with time with LPs before COVID. So it's hard for LPs to sort of do the Zoom thing. I think it's harder than it is with founders for whatever reason, because you're really just backing a partnership. And so I think we'll see a lot of uh, solo GPs. And I think LPs would rather take a risk on a solo GP that they can sort of vet that person than having to try to vet a new partnership via Zoom because it's really hard without seeing the body language and spending a lot of time in person. So I think we'll see more of that and we're seeing these little funds happen. Um, so certainly the, the smaller funds. You know, another shift that we're seeing a ton of is just a lot more diversity on a lot of levels at the GP level. Most diversity in venture still lies in that emerging manager category um, for the GP side. And I think the bigger firms are getting better at uh, being more intentional around hiring and making sure that they have the right teams uh, set up to you know take advantage of the many overlooked and new opportunities across markets as you see a lot of demographic shifts happening. So I think it'll happen at the bigger firms, but it's you know it's venture. There's only so many jobs. Um, it is an apprenticeship-driven industry, in my opinion, and so I I still think it's important for folks to go and get experience in different ways, um, especially as you know getting investing experience. But I think you will see a lot more diversity at the GP level, which is a shift um, that we're also excited about. Yeah, and we're certainly seeing that, and I would share that enthusiasm for that trend. And you know, we do hope that it continues at the uh, at the pace we're seeing, at least over the last uh, year and a half here. And I want to get into how you as a partnership think about new emerging manager opportunities. But before we get into that, I always talk to emerging managers about understanding the type of LPs you're going after, understand their profiles, how they make decisions. 
What can you tell us about a fund of funds itself? So you have 34 partner funds investments. What do you look at when you're bringing on somebody new? Sure. Yeah. So we across the two, so we have a a 2016 fund. I started in 2016. So 2016 was the first Foundry Group Next Fund. And 2018 was the second Foundry Group Next Fund. That's like sort of this new series of funds with that title. And so across those two funds, we have 32 partner fund managers and then, I don't know, 50-something individual fund entities. So what happens, you know, and what GP should understand is with most LPs that have been doing venture for a while, they have pretty full portfolios and they don't want to have a ton of relationships. It's a lot of work. It's more work, I think, than people um, assume and expect. And so, you know, to add a new manager for most LPs, they're adding, you know, zero to two a year is, is what a lot will tell you. There are some, and I know of like I, an endowment comes to mind that I was just talking to where they didn't really have a venture program until a new person came in or a new CIO and said, hey, we want we want more venture. And so those, like when they're building, you'll see, and you'll see people go quickly. So for for my part, part of the reason I had such an incredible education in learning this space so quickly uh, is one, that I was totally focused on, you know, early stage and small funds in North America. Two was that I had Lindell. But three is that we went at an incredibly fast pace because we had a lot of relationships and we sort of had a great funnel to pick from. And so, you know, we were doing like, I think we were at like a one a month pace for the first two years, which is sort of insane for an LP and not normal. And so it really at this point now, we, we sort of feel like we have the thing relatively built. We are focused on doing direct investments with our partner fund managers as their portfolios mature. So I've actually shifted gears a lot in the past you know, 12 months or so to doing more on the direct side, which is, which is super fun. And where we will continue to add is probably more in that emerging manager category. Um, and it's a thing where as we take a step back and look at our portfolio, think about what we, you know, what we would have liked to have done more of is probably, you know, backing a couple of more fun one and twos. And so I think, you know, you won't see us add a ton over the next couple of years. Um, and, you know, some of our funds in our, you know, our core positions, some of them will graduate out, the funds will get a, a bit larger. And so we, you know, we, we sort of, you know, happily graduate them off to our LPs and sort of disintermediate ourselves and, have them talk to them directly because at a certain size, it doesn't necessarily make sense for us anymore. Um, you know, sometimes partnerships will blow up. <laughs> that happens. Everyone's bound to hit a few of those as an LP. Yeah. And so, you know, some of them will go away for that reason. Um, if strategies shift, sometimes, you know, that's that, then we then we wouldn't re-up. But most of what we'll do is continue to just re-up with the same managers. And that's that's what a lot of LPs are doing. But we do we do want to add a bit more in the emerging manager category because we do think it's important. You know, we're so network driven. We want to make sure that our networks include the next generation, you know, both of GPs and then on a look-through basis of founders. Uh, that's really important to us, especially in the way that we are, you know, sort of sourcing and focusing um, our direct deals. So uh, that's probably where you would see us add. Um, I would say broadly, you know, with respect to LPs, you've just got to understand that, you know, it's not like the hot seed deal where people are going to spend three weeks and tell you, yes, these are 20-year partnerships, as much as we all hate to think of it that way. Like the docs say 10 years, but these are 20-year partnerships. And the hope for most LPs is if they do the work, they want to re-up with you and back your next you know, your next funds. And so, you know, it does take a lot to add a new a new logo to the page, um, certainly for us. And, and we, you know, everybody has their process. I think individuals, high net worth individuals, sometimes family offices can move a bit more quickly. Um, but it is certainly more of a process than most, I think, direct deals. 
we did a survey, I think it was a year and a half ago, where we looked at fund ones and we found nearly 70% of the capital did come from non-institutional, so primarily high net worth individuals and family offices. The difficult thing is that it is a very opaque market, hard to find. It's easy to find fund of funds. And going back to your comment of a lot of fund of funds are only adding zero to two, you actually publish your partner fund portfolio on the website. Is there anything that a prospective manager that's looking to talk you can glean from just looking at the names? One thing I will say is that we are not a typical fund of funds because it's really a it's a it's a minority of what we do. And while we believe that we can, you know, pick good managers and that we've got a great pipeline and a great network to help us identify great managers and we've got the right experience to do that well. It's really, it's a small piece of our business and it's part of, you know, adding to our network, which at the end of the day feeds our deal flow. So like, yes, we want to make money on our partner funds portfolio, certainly. And we think we will do that. But part of it is also part of a broader strategy, which is, um, you know, our direct deals. So we're slightly different in that respect than most fund of funds, although many fund of funds do um, do co-investments. We don't really think of ourselves as as a typical LP co-investor. We think of ourselves as a direct shop that happened to have backed a bunch of seed funds um, that you know like to partner with us. So I'll, I'll caveat it with that. And so we we probably have, you know, we've got a good size number of relationships, whereas some fund of funds like to be a lot more concentrated because they get worried about. Um, you know, like over diversification. And so, and and it also is a reason why some fund of funds like a more concentrated portfolio than we might, uh, because they want added exposure to the, on the look-through basis. We're sort of like, you know, I'm more focused on, I want these funds to do well and having a number of deals to come uh, through to us. Uh, but, you know, there's a balance to that. We could talk about portfolio construction. But I would say if you, you know, if you look at our website, you'll see a mix of funds. You'll see a couple of things that ring true. One is save for one where we had an existing relationship and they sort of invest all over. We're North America focused and it's really US and Canada. We have uh, one fund in Toronto and then everything else in the US. So that's one thing you'll you'll see. Um, the other is they're mostly small funds. They're mostly sub 100 million, uh, save for a few exceptions where we have access because of the relationships we have with some of these GPs and they're great funds. And so, you know, Sometimes you just take the access that you have when you when it's a great partner. You know that's a that's a true ventures. That's a USV. I think another thing you'll see is most of the firms are relatively established. I think maybe an institutional LP might say our portfolio looks very emerging, but for our part, we feel like we have a lot in this middle category where they're like they're not quite fund one two totally emerging brand new. They're sort of in the middle category, but not quite like fully established yet. Not quite our peers yet. So you'll see a bunch of those. And then I would I would say you see a lot of what most would call generalist funds, you know, on our portfolio page. Um, but I think that while they are generalists, they are specifically good at something or they, ha- they have a, th- a specific thesis or there's some sort of underlying themes that you can tie together for what they're working on or they have expertise in certain areas. So we haven't really done anything vertical. I would say the most, you know, specific thing we've done is we have got a few funds in there um, that focus on enterprise or B2B SaaS. Um, so Arthur Ventures, Costa Noa, Bonfire, Bowery are all in that category. And then we do have a couple, you know, studios slash funds. I don't see us adding a lot more in that category. And then from the accelerator perspective, we're partners with Techstars and we go way back with Techstars. So those are a couple of things you can glean you know, and I think when we add, we certainly we want things to be you know complementary, but we're really looking to add to the network and to extend. Like at this point, given what we have built, we really want to extend our network. 
So if there's just a ton of overlap and we feel like, wow, these people are you know fishing in the exact same pond as a bunch of our managers and it's a ton of overlap and we recognize every deal they've done, you know, it's hard for us to think of that as additive. So that is a consideration. Um, and, you know, you'll, you'll, another thing you'll see if you look at our portfolio is that and it's a thing you would see if you look at our direct portfolio as well and the, the pretty map that we make for our annual meetings. We believe great companies can be built anywhere. Um, and so we've been, you know, we've been sort of operating under that thesis for a long time. And we've got companies in lots of sort of the the middle part of the country. And we have funds as well that cover um, the middle part of the country as well as the coasts. Um, and, you know, one thing we're seeing that's interesting is even our coastal firms are starting to do deals in, you know, quote unquote, the rest of the country. So I think that's a thing that was already happening that will be accelerated by COVID and this sort of new appetite for remote workforces. And I think, that, I think that's a great thing. A topic that I often like to discuss with both GPs and LPs is the notion of competitive mode and whether it exists and what constitutes it. With over a thousand managers that have formed over the last decade and perhaps greatly over that thousand uh, number, this, of course, is an important part of any narrative. How do you look at competitive mode and what are the things that you think in your mind really bring some level of real and tangible differentiation in a way that matters? One, on the count, um, I can't believe it's at over a thousand. I think when I started, it was not close to that. Um, and I appreciate all the work that you and your team at First Republic do um, to get us all this data because I often reference it. So um, super helpful. Um, it's, you know, it's overwhelming to me that there's that many. And so I think a lot of us tired LPs are like, ah, no more funds. But I actually, I don't think it's a, you know, it's a bad thing that there's um, more and more VC funds because there's, you know, there's just so much startup activity. So uh, I think there's plenty of room. So as far as the, as the things you mentioned, I sort of zoom out and take the um, sort of the non-answer, which is it's really all about the people. Um, I think it, it when you're looking at a startup, yes, it's all about the founders, but it's also about the market and the opportunity. And sure, those things matter here, but like it is so much about the people because you know we're selling a commodity as venture capitalists, and you know we sell money, right? And we are middle people. We have LPs that give us money, and then we give money to other people. Sometimes we give money to other people who then give that money to other people. But at the end of the day, it's putting money in entrepreneurs' hands to do the special work. And so we really think that the people involved matter the most. And so that is the moat. One thing I will say is there is no such thing as proprietary deal flow. It's not a red flag index, but it just is laughable when I see that index because nobody has that arguably something like a YC or a Techstars where they actually are, you know, they have the accelerator and so, and they have a fund set up. And so maybe that's proprietary deal flow or a studio per, perhaps, but it really is very rare and I just don't think it exists. Um, so I think at the end of the day, you know, you've got to be a great at a bunch of things. So these are your jobs, right? As a VC, it is sourcing, picking, winning. So, you know, sourcing great deals, picking the right ones, winning the ones that you've picked, and then managing them, like helping them, adding value, you know, getting them to the next point, keeping them alive, <laughs> getting them funded, um, and then eventually exiting and really liquidity. Like that's your job. Your job is to return a multiple on the capital that your LPs gave you. And so those are the things that we sort of, if you take a step back, it's like that's how you be a great VC. You have to be great at all of those things. If I think about your list, um, I think as far as you know, competitive moats go. I've got like track record matters a ton. And I know in the emerging manager category, um, track records are thin. And, and that's a thing that, you know, LPs have to sort of take a leap of faith with. 
But if you just think about, if you just sort of zoom out and look at what's attractive to LPs and and how do how do firms get well known? Well, it's by performing really well and having really good track records. You backed Uber at the beginning. You backed X company at the beginning, right? So, I think having that those hits that matters. Um, and I think founders want to work with the Sequoias of the world because Sequoia is super successful. So it puts a stamp of approval. It might actually help you because their networks are so established. Um, I should probably use Foundry Group and not Sequoia as my example, but I think you get the point. <laughs> but so I think so track record, I do think can really set a firm apart. It's um, you probably have more of this data than I do. And certainly Cambridge has put stuff together. But if you think about just sort of the distribution of returns and of performance, you know, there's a real subset of venture capital firms that do really, really well. And then there's a lot that do sort of okay. And then there's a bunch that actually perform very poorly. There definitely is a power return law that does exist, not only in companies, but, you know, the separation of top decile versus, you know, the rest of the field. But going back to your point about people being so important, you've invested in some great, great people, whether it be IA Ventures or Forerunner, Freestyles of the world. Is there something consistent about those teams or those individuals from a characteristic standpoint that you feel leads to a good formula for success as a venture capitalist? So I think it's a couple of things. One is being thesis driven and being super thoughtful about portfolio construction, about establishing your brand in the market, and about really like knowing what you're looking for and being able to go get it when you want it. I think it's really hard for VCs everybody struggles with this to articulate like what what does that mean like how do you know when you know i think it seems like a very gut driven business and i think a lot of times it is but i do think if you take a step back a lot of these firms that perform really well they have a thesis they sort of have a type of entrepreneur there's some characteristic it's not you know it, it's not necessarily pattern matching but there's just like something they see in certain entrepreneurs something they're looking for um, and then for a lot of those firms, it's like really understanding markets well and having a ton of experience. All the firms you mentioned, you know, there's a there's just a lot of experience around the table. Um, in some cases, there's operator experience, which I think really helps. Um, but there's certainly market expertise and there's brand for doing a certain kind of thing, right? So IA stands out, you know, for data-driven companies, and they were doing that earlier. Early, they have a great brand. Roger, in particular, is super well-known. Um and just a lot of conviction around what they're doing and being super thoughtful about the teams. I actually had a, a an interesting call with IA recently where they sort of took a step back and looked at the first couple of funds and looked for recurring themes for things that worked and didn't. And so doing that thoughtful work. And then you look at something like Forerunner, right? And it's just like incredible brand, real expertise in that market, really understanding the future of commerce. God, Forerunner is so good. Like Picking the right D2C brand is really, really hard. That's why a lot of, you know, VCs have a hard time with direct-to-consumer brands. Many people say, like, you know, direct-to-consumer brands shouldn't be, um, you know, they're not, it's not a venture scale type of company and, and that's not the right way to fund them. Um, and it's not all that Forerunner does. And a lot of LPs, like, will, you know, stay away from that side of things. But man, are they good at picking the right ones. It's unbelievable to me. And so I think just, you know, if, like, zooming out even further, and a thing that I always say to new GPs is like, be authentic and build your firm and your strategy around the people. And so what are the things, you know, like it really, it's it's sort of like founder market fit. You've got to have like GP strategy fit. No, I think that's a great point. And I know you went, you're going through rather coffin fellows and we always talk about things like superpowers and zone of genius. And that certainly uh, gels well with what you just said. 
But absent, you know, a track record or a brand, which a lot of people, you know, starting a fund one don't have, are there other things that as an institutional LP you look at and say, this person or this team has something special that they're bringing to the table that's very clear? So I think networks are really important. Um, and so that that is often helpful. I mean, that's generally where deal flow comes from. There are, I think there's a lot of people out there that are working on new models that are very you know, data and technology and algorithmically driven to source deals. Um, but at the end of the day, even those firms are still using their networks. And it's not only using your networks for deal flow, but also um, in helping with talent and helping with customer introductions and all of those things sort of post-investment. So I do think networks are really important. And I think being able to to sort of clarify what your network is, like what are the, the closest nodes in your network? Everyone's got a big network. And when you see a, you know, when you see the network slide and there's like 10 million different people on there and all these different institutions and people that say like we have the best access to YC, you just sort of roll your eyes because you're like, that just can't it can't be true. So I think Explaining your your network in a way that is actually vetable, where LPs can go and actually say, "Okay, that that's right." But understanding what's the what are the closest aspects of your network and how do you how do you work with people? Um, so network matters, reputation matters. You may not have, you know, a true brand as an emerging GP, and your firm probably doesn't. It's probably more about the individual. And so there's you know there's thought leadership and the content and sort of what you do on Twitter and all that stuff. But what people I think underestimate is how important your reputation is in sort of the back channeling world that, that LPs uh, that LPs live in. And so, you know, remember that every co-investor you deal with, every founder that you deal with, you know, every operator that you deal with, all of these people are having interactions with you and forming opinions based on how you act. And so treating people with respect, you know, up and down the snack down the stack, no matter how important you think they may be to you, that's something that comes through when you start to call around. And so I think personal brand um, is a thing that you can have established, you know, as you go into being an emerging manager and does matter a ton. Some expertise in something and some experience in something. I think it is really hard to do this job without some life experience. That may be shorter for for some than others because of, you know, the sort of the significance of those experiences. Um, but certainly like where you've worked and what you've done and that stuff matters. I don't think this is a job that necessarily can be done well straight out of college. Maybe it can, maybe I'm wrong. You've got dorm room fund, right? So you've got stuff like, but I, I do think that just some like life experience and perspective and having seen, I think when, whenever I talk to young people that want to get into venture, my suggestion is always the thing that that I didn't do. And had I known that I was going to end up here, I totally would have done. Um, I sort of steal it from my, my husband and, and his family on the Fair Harbor experience, but like go get experience at a startup and seeing something through from, you know, from beginning to end or a good part of that cycle, you'll learn so much and you bring so much to the table and just like sort of understanding um, how companies work. So I think having some domain expertise certainly can help you get started if you're sort of known as a go-to in X category. But beyond expertise, I think it's just experience across the board. And certainly if you can get investment experience in some way, I think that's I think that's really helpful. Well, you know, it's interesting. The point that we talked about earlier is that, you know, a lot of the fund one managers coming to market don't have that track record and are unlikely in many cases to get traditional institutional capital, be it a fund of funds or an endowment. But, you know, they use it as a proof of concept fund. They start building a portfolio. They start execute on certain things. And then many of them look to raise a fund two within two, maybe three years max. When you look at those fund two managers or aspiring fund two managers, given that there's not a lot to look at outside of maybe a few markups, 
What are you really looking at? And how do you actually evaluate those managers given it's still pretty early? You know, we always say that it's really if you're if you're backing fund one, unless something changes, you're sort of signing up for fund one and fund two because there's you're not going to have seen much in the fund one portfolio to help. You know, it's the same thing like between the seed and the seed two round, you're not going to have that much more data on a company, right? Um, and so it's it's somewhat similar to that. And so we think about it as you know, the portfolio is your box of shiny toys that you have to show. Like, this is what I did. And so building an interesting portfolio, you know, I see a lot of man, and I get why they do it. I see a lot of managers coming back to market super quickly. Um, you said three years, like I see very few in the emerging category come back that quickly. It feels like a year and a half or two years, which I get because often, you know, the first one was pretty small. But that said, I think, you know, like pacing yourself matters and, and, really being thoughtful about the companies that you pick because that's all that you have to show for yourself. And then understanding the value of of time and vintage diversification. You know, getting a good three years in in that portfolio actually can be helpful um, if you look at historic returns. So two sort of off-topic things about just like slow down. So certainly it's the portfolio they've built and then the stories around the portfolio, right? So I always tell people like it's really important to track all this stuff and have good data. Not necessarily you're, you're gonna you're not necessarily gonna put a spreadsheet of you know all the deals you looked at in front of an LP and this is what we sourced and but you need to like sort of glean the insights to have the big takeaways. It helps you identify like where in your network is like where is the deal flow coming from and how do you talk about that. How I, I say for every company talk about like what it, or like keep a list. Where did it come from? What did it look like when you found it? How did you win the deal or win your allocation if you didn't lead? Um, what have you done for them since? And where is the company today? And being able to sort of know all of that and pull out stories to talk about, like that's how you operate. That's what that's you know that's your job as a VC. These are the things that you're doing. And so to be able to tell stories to LPs, figure out your case studies, all of that stuff. It's also interesting to know, you know, if you have that most most new firms have CRM systems <laughs> set up. Uh, how many deals did you see, right? And again, like where are they coming from, and and what did you pass on? So I think that um, that's what we're looking at is sort of you know the the proof of concept of like how have you been working. The other thing is just checking in on, okay, what did you say you were going to do versus what did you do? So what was the portfolio construction supposed to be? What types of companies were you were you supposed to be focusing on, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And just like, is this interesting? I think that there's the general sort of, you know, I look at the full portfolio of every emerging manager to the extent that they have on even their angel portfolios and you sort of take a step back and like, is this interesting? And then of course, there's markups. Uh, if you started investing in 2019 or 2018, your portfolio probably is looking pretty good after this year uh, for a lot of managers. And, you know, for better or worse, that actually can be super helpful. I think, and then, sorry, the other thing is the follow-on decisions that you've made in the meantime and being able to talk about why you did or did not follow on um, and what that looks like. And then lastly, especially for most funds intend to jump in fund size. And so keeping track of, and, you know, like I, I think LPs take it with a grain of salt because everybody sort of says it, but like, where you say, hey, we actually could have led this. Um, and if I call the founder, they will tell me, yeah, I, I would have loved to have had them lead, but they didn't have a big enough fund. Or for some, and I wouldn't suggest doing this forever, but a lot of times in fund one, people do it, is where you have pro rata and you can't, you don't have a big enough fund to take it, then setting up a couple SPVs to get some of your best deals done can sort of show that you that you put a bit more money to work than what's in the fund. But that does get to be burdensome over time if you do too many of them. So it sounds like there's a series of things that you still can look at, even though it's, you know, let's call it a, a two-year period. And I'm glad you went through that. I also like to talk about 
you know, emerging managers. And you touched on some of the things that you see, whether it's, you know, saying you have a proprietary deal network or having a, a cast of thousands on your advisory page. Are there common mistakes that you see either in a story or when they're pitching you? So there's a couple of things. So one is overstating you know, your last job or your experience to date. We see it across the board and it's very easy to go figure out if that's real or not. Um, especially, you know, with respect to attribution, if you were at another venture firm, make sure that that firm, to- like if I call them, they say the exact thing to me that you said to me about whichever deals. And it's okay if you weren't the lead on those deals and you just worked on them. Like you get really good training at certain firms. And so having been there can can be enough. And so I think that, you know, you're worse off if you overstate it than if you sort of, you know, it doesn't look like you've led enough or that you were senior enough because it's really easy for most of us to figure that stuff out. So that's one thing. I think another thing is just being transactional and just thinking of this as asking in the first meeting, like, are you going to write me a check? <laughs> that just isn't going to go well. Um, and toward, sort of taking a transactional approach instead of a long-term approach. Um, and I think being okay with the fact that a lot of LPs, especially, you know, if they're more of an institution, are going to say no to a first fund and they may take a meeting or two with you to start to get to know you, but just understanding that those no's are not no's forever. And I can think of, you know, at least two examples where we said no initially and have come back either to fund the next fund or even in that same fundraise cycle came back later and decided to do it. So I would say just like, don't be transactional, take Take the rejections well, as hard as that is. And then I think on the storytelling piece, um, being Chris about it and trying to tie everything back to some sort of thesis that you have across the fund, whether it's the type of company or the markets you're looking at or a certain opportunity, you know, to, to, to the point about the proprietary deal flow, don't tell me that you're the first fund that's backing all female founders. I know that that's not true. That doesn't exist anymore. So I understand that there's like opportunities out there that have been generally overlooked by venture and you know those are huge opportunities and we should go after that but calling yourself the first or the only just sort of gets the eye roll at this point <laughs> there maybe maybe it's true for you know in some places um i have not seen like a pet focused fund maybe there's an opportunity for a pet focused fund um but i think like a lot of us have seen most of it and so under you know understanding that and then you know you've got to figure out how to tell the team story i think that's even harder to do on Zoom. And so I think you're just understanding it's going to take a lot of time. And it, to the extent possible, the GP team should be on those calls with LPs together. And you should have a really nice chemistry. And you know who's going to talk about what. And you highlight everybody. Everybody's got their video on. Stuff like that matters because everyone's just trying to figure out the team dynamics. Well, it's a great point. And, you know, team chemistry amongst partnerships are so important because we have seen partnerships fail and dissolve and impede like great firms from, you know, reaching their potential. But I want to turn this around for a minute. When you evaluate firms, you're asking a number of questions. What are some of the best questions that GPs have asked you? So GPs will ask us like how we differentiate amongst managers, especially in what seems like a crowded market. Um, and so that's hard because I always just go back to like, it's about the people. GPs uh, will ask us, like some of the same questions you're asking me, which is like how to talk to LPs, how to na- – okay, so the, here's the hardest one in my mind for emerging managers is how do I go – so I will say to them, 
and sometimes we will commit to a fun one and we're and you'll see us doing a bit more of that um probably over the next 18 months or so they will ask us well like which lp should we talk to or can you look at our list and help us and it's it's usually me telling them well this is a first time fund you have a limited track record most institutions will not invest in this fund and so you're going to raise it from high net worth individuals and family offices i don't know how to tell somebody how to go do that um i don't have the family office network that i know first republic is is building um or the high net worth individual off, uh, network and to date i don't think that anybody has figured out how to how to go to the family offices and high net worth individuals that are investing in VC funds and figure out how to build some efficiency and some transparency and some access to that network. And so, you know, I, this is a bit of a, a tangent, but like one of the challenges to why is there no, not enough diversity in VC, one is who's been hired by the bigger firms over the years, but two is who's been able to actually go and get fund one raised because fund one is family offices and high net worth individuals. And successful white men typically have the most access to those groups of people. So that to me is probably the hardest question is like, well, then how like how do I navigate this? How do I go and do this? And I don't really have a good answer for them other than like you've just got to hustle and talk to your friends and, you know, figure out ways to get introductions. Um, so I think I see that as a huge challenge. That's something that a lot of people struggle with in the High net worth and family office environment is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, opaque. And if you talk to one family office, you've talked to one because they all have different decision making. And understanding those LP archetypes is super, super important. But that's great advice. I appreciate you being so transparent during this conversation. I want to move to our final segment, which is our heat check segment, which is really three rapid fire questions, starting with your biggest career mistake and what you learned from it. I would say my biggest career mistake was not realizing how important the people that I would be working with on a day-to-day -day basis matters. And so I think that often people are far more concerned with things that matter, like the substance of your work you're doing, the prestige um, of the name of the firm or company that you're working for, the title that you have. And in my mind, in looking back, where I ended up unhappy um, and was because of the people. And so to me, the most important thing, part of it is being patient, which is not a thing I'm good at. So I'm sure I've made a million mistakes on that front. Um, but also like really just focusing on the people and surrounding yourself, yourself, especially in the earlier years of your career with just great people that are going to take an interest in you and where learning is the most important thing and just sort of being open that like lots of different things could happen. Speaking of learning, I also ask this question for GPs and they invariably have an anti-portfolio, that one company that got away. Is there a fund that you look back and say, hey, we should have gotten in or we should have gotten in earlier, assuming it's in the portfolio right now? Mucker is my go-to. I love Mucker, and and they did a very smart thing relatively recently, uh, where they hired my good friend Monique Via uh, to sort of cover the the Southeast region for them. She's fantastic. So you know, just an even an added dagger to the heart when they did that. But that's one where you know we it was just so challenging when we did this at the beginning because we were just doing so we had so we were moving so quickly and so we built so fast that we we started to sort of run out of appetite at some point. You know, we talked to Mucker, they were, you know, a little bit further along than, than some of the funds we were looking at as far as like, is this, you know, is this sort of past us? They, I think they certainly are now. For whatever reason, didn't do it. And that's one. And we, we wouldn't have been the, the honey fund anyway, right? That was an earlier one. Um, but that's one where it's just like, 
great people. I love the portfolio. I continue when they announce new deals. I'm like, ah, we should have done this. Um, So yeah, I'll give you that one. Uh, There's always one. There's always one. You've talked to probably hundreds, if not thousands of uh, VCs and GPs over the last several years. What is a single piece of advice that you'd give to somebody that's just starting out in VC? I'm going to do two, which is a cheat. But the, the first is authenticity. I think just like I can't say how important that is, is just being authentic to yourself, knowing your strengths, like knowing what you're good at and where you should play. That should sort of really help direct you as to as to what you do and how you build your fund and portfolio construction and how you work with companies, all of those things. So I think authenticity is one. And then two, for people that are just so itching to get into venture and start their own firm, I would say like patience and just know what you're getting yourself into because I think it's over-glorified. You know, one thing to remember, especially as an emerging manager, especially if you have a limited track record, not a ton of experience, it's going to take you 24 months probably to raise the fund. And guess how much money you make in that time? Zero dollars. Like you don't have a salary until you've clo- at least had a, a first closing and start can start calling a management fee. Um, and fundraising is a slog. And so just getting through that just so you can actually start get to work and start investing, it's hard. Um, and the feedback cycle is super long, right? Like you don't really know if you're good at this for at least five years to sort of see how the portfolio is maturing and certainly, you know, eight or 10 years to start seeing the liquidity that you want and getting into carry, right? So just know what you're getting yourself into. That is a point that bears reinforcing multiple times over. And people often are surprised about how much time they spend on things that are not actually, you know, investing. It's things that are like building a firm and, you know, hiring and, you know, toiling away looking at decks. So that's a great piece of advice. Jacqueline, I always have so much fun talking to you. Thanks again for being on the show and happy Thanksgiving. Thanks so much for having me. You too. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. To learn more about Jacqueline and Founder Group, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find really detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlock episode as soon as it's released.